Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Hello, Greenhorns. This is Severin. It's a Greenhorn radio session, uh, radio about the young farming movement forward, progress towards... um, progress towards the future we can eat and enjoy and i have been already on the radio once before with jacob cowgill from montana but it's been a while oh wait it's not cowgill it's cowgill isn't it that's right yeah i'm sorry i may have missed it once it's locked in it's really hard so um how's the haps over there how's the weather where you are uh, the weather is cold today. It's been kind of in a strange, uh, strange winter. It's been um, way too warm and not enough snow. But today it's about way twelve above. Way too warm and not enough snow for you. That is twelve above. Yeah, well, that's that, the same over here. Day. We've it's, been having we've been having forty and fifty degree days, which is really unusual for January and February. So uh, what are we going to do about that? <laughs> Pray to the weather gods, I suppose. Pray to the weather gods. Okay, hold on now. Back up. we got to give a little backstory. So um, what's going on out there on the prairie with you? Well, uh, I think the last time we talked, uh, my wife and I were just starting out, and that was 2009. Um, we are currently on the same um, same farm that we lease. Uh, we don't actually live on the farm. We lease about 15 acres, and we're in the same place um, for now. But we grow uh, vegetables for a CSA. We grow heritage turkeys also for a CSA and for direct sales. And um, we're growing, on the majority of the acreage, we're growing ancient and heritage grains and seeds, which we also direct market and uh, sell through a CSA. And you're, so you're hyper tightly, you're very diversified, kind of similar to the, the kinds of farms that were originally homestead-type farms out there. Um, and, how's, and how's the success, or, and how's the challenges? Well, it's, I guess I'd have to say it's been pretty successful, uh, given that... Um, Neither of us have had a, uh, any significant background in farming, and uh, we're, neither of us either have had significant background in starting a business. So I'd say after three years, it's been a pretty good success. It hasn't been easy by any means, but, um, but we've been happy. We, we have a, you know, there's always the, the same challenges of any young farmer, which is access to land, which we've, we've somewhat solved, although it's not, uh, it's not a permanent um, situation that we're in so there's always that uh that issue um access to capital we've we've been able to um avoid taking on any major debt but we have uh we did raise money from friends and family at the beginning and then we've also purchased a tractor on credit and we haven't had any trouble getting access to that kind of capital um but since we don't own a farm we don't have to worry about trying to uh uh, get a loan for that, and then uh, skills and and knowledge. I think that's just going to come with time. You know, every year that we make make our mistakes, we'll learn from them. Hopefully, not repeat them the next year. 
Well, and, and both you and your wife have um, very sensibly kept your day jobs. Now, um, that's not everybody makes that decision, but but some people do. And could you reflect on, um, you know, that's obviously a lot of a lot of extra work to do two jobs instead of just focusing on one job. Um, but what what does that mean for you in terms of the farm? Well, actually, we we. Uh, not very sensibly have we have not kept our day jobs. My wife has. Um, well, it's it's a bit of a bit of a saga, but essentially uh, last year, excuse me, 2010, I had a full time job, and uh, my wife worked a little bit part time, but was mostly um, was mostly uh, she just did a little, little bit Farming? of freelance work. And then uh, as we went through this 2010 season, in that situation, it was pretty clear that it was, it was just too much. My, my job was an hour away, so it was a two-hour, a one-hour drive each, each way every day and a lot of travel in there, too, and the farm really suffered for it. And so when winter hit and we started thinking about the next season and how we were going to pull it off, we made the nonsensible decision to, for me to quit my full-time job with benefits, for her to pick up some part-time work, and um, and we went on the, out on the open market for health insurance, which was an awful experience, but we found something, and uh, that was last season. So last season, I was full-time farming, and she was part-time working, part-time farming, part-time child raising, and uh, it, was, a baby it was really tough. Wait a minute, you forgot to talk. Isn't there a baby in the mix here someplace? Yes, there is a baby in the mix. So Willow was born um, 2010, end of, near the end of 2010. And so 2011 was with a small baby, um, and uh, that was every, – every year has had its own unique challenges, and every year has been completely different. So who knows what this year is going to be like. But I'm full-time farming, which is – you know, when we made the decision for me to quit my full-time job, it was it was based on knowing that – the farm was going to suffer at best and and uh, and more than likely just fail. So that's why I quit my full-time job. And with little baby, that was kind of a hard decision. But um, but that's what we did, and we pulled through, pulled pulled it off last year, and we hope to pull it off again this year. So you're pulling through, and the little baby is successfully born and survived. Because that's the other thing. It's like once they make it, they're like little baby animals. They get stronger every year. Uh, what's next? Any big changes? Uh, well, new company out on the prairie? Like well, what's, we, this, what's well, going on in the, in the scene? Um, for us or for, for the neighborhood? For you and for the neighborhood. Well, for for us, we've we've spent the last well, pretty much since we've started farming where we are now um, in 2009, we've been trying to figure out a way to just to secure some land and um, more importantly, secure a, a, a farm. You know, buildings and house and and land. And we've gone through multiple scenarios, and none of which have worked out. And it's been a bit of a roller coaster. And so this last year, we came really close and um, came up short. And so. Uh, we've gone through a bunch of different possible scenarios, and and uh, we might be getting closer to 
um, closer to a more permanent location, which is uh, just south of us now on my wife's dad's place. So that's kind of a big that's kind of a big deal for us. We might ha- be able to live on the farm, which has always been a challenge with the little one. And um, but that's not for sure either. So we'll just have to wait and see. Um, as far as the farm farming itself goes, we're really excited about the ancient heritage grains. We we grow a what we call prairie farro, which is um, emmer, which is an ancient wheat. We grow a Sonora wheat, which is a heritage variety. We grow bronze barley and then some legumes. And well, we've been direct marketing those through our CSA and then to, to some just some individuals who want a few pounds here and there. But um, we've given our scale. It's big enough that we need specialized equipment for the grain. In other words, we need a combine, which we have. We need a swather. We need a grain drill. We need all those things. Um, but in particular, post-harvest, we need the specialized cleaning equipment because we're we're big enough that we can't do it by hand, um, or at least we don't have the the time to do it by hand. And uh, yet, we're small enough that most of the seed cleaning companies around us just won't even bother with us. And 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 no fault of their own, they have they're working in fifty thousand pound batches, and we're you know growing two thousand pounds of any one thing. So we recently got a grant to purchase some seed cleaning equipment, so that's a big, big step forward, I think. And, um, and then the, the step after that will be to be able to mill those clean grains for customers because we give them whole grain right now and give them lots of recipes on what to do with whole grain, but uh, we aren't able to commercially grind flour. So that will be our next step is to put together possibly a mobile mill uh, that we can take around different places and stone ground, stone grind um, people's people's grain. So hopefully that's this will all come together next or this year. Well, it doesn't sound very ambitious at all. Trying to straddle. I mean, this is obviously, you know, continually the question, like, how do you scale up in an organic way from an an operation where you're dealing with varieties that are either, you know, ancient or, um, or, or, you know, adapting the, those heritage grains and getting your systems all up and up and going. And then getting it to the scale where you can actually um, plug into even just a bakery, the demands and the rhythm and the the, the expectation that they have, having dealt with you know um, flour by the pallet, yeah, uh, it's quite a it's quite a coupling to make. Well, right. Do you and think that you'll be able to sell to a bakery even this coming year, or is that the next year, or three years from now, or? You know, I would. I'm not going to um, make it a primary goal to do it this year. Our our first step is to simply get the stuff put together, the cleaning equipment in the mill, and then get our CSA customers flour if they want it, and then uh, also direct market to other individuals. You know, set since it'll be a mobile mill, and and we're kind of fond of the idea of calling it a micro millery. But set it up at farmers markets so people can come up and and buy their whole grain and then we grind it for them and then they have absolutely the freshest flour they can possibly get, um, short of having their own mill. And see see where that goes. And in the meantime we'll we'll start to visit with bakeries and, and we know that we can't compete with the flour that um we can't compete with the companies that are providing 
bakeries with flour now. So we have to take a different tact. We have to tell bakers to try our flour for specialty things. So in other words, um, not try to like replace smaller the runs of things out. or special local loaves or that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So make it about the variety that we're growing because we're not growing a general all-purpose white. Um, we're growing a spe specific varieties, and so the bakers will have to highlight that in in their bread when they sell it because it is part of uh, part of the story. But also, we won't be able to sell it for for pennies um, like they're used to getting it. And also, we're not going to be able to, at least at the beginning, provide them with the same exact flour with the same exact amount of protein every single year. It's going to be a lot like um, a lot like selling it like you might uh, grapes for, for a bottle of wine. Um, it's going to be about that taste of place, and it's also going to be about the season. So we should, we'll have to be able to communicate with our bakers to say, this, you know, this year's crop of Sonora was, was excellent and it has these sorts of qualities, whereas you know, the 2011 you know, crop, um, because of the season, has these particular qualities. So each year is going to be different. As commercial flowers blended in order to produce the same consistent flour for bakers, so they don't have to worry about changing anything. They just use this, the flour year after year the same way they did the previous year. So it's going to be a totally different um, uh, concept for bakers, and at the same time it's going to be uh, up to us to try to tell them um, that story of the grain and, and convince them that they should use it. And I don't know if we are going to be able to, but that's the hope. But that's a lot of that's a lot of work ahead of us. So we're not gonna we're not gonna push the the, the bakeries just yet um, until we just figure out these things on our own. Well, and and so for those who are also thinking about small grains, um, and I've been going to wonderful conferences on wheat growing, and there is tremendous interest right now in uh, growing grains, local grains, milling, local milling. Uh, these older varieties uh, of farro and spelt and kamut and rise in rotation, you know, as part of a CSA operation, um, as a as a value as a thing to put um, as an extra crop uh, for a diversified farm. But then there is also tremendous interest in the baking in the artisanal baking world. Um, there's a kneading conference in Maine in Skowhegan, Maine, and now there's one that. Stephen Jones of WSU is run for the first time last year out in Washington State, um, and I I went to that and you know met. Literally, there were 13 ovens set up at the same time, and people were all talking about baking with lower protein flours, uh, figuring out the recipes, reskilling around these different uh, flours. So, you know, I think that it's all kind of happening. Uh, it's just a matter of it's just a matter of everybody, you know, tuning into what other people are talking about and passing the knowledge along. And it's so exciting. You're really in a good place, Jacob. I'm 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 impressed with your timing. Uh, well, yeah, I, I agree. I I I think we are in a good good place and at a good time. Um, it's a uh, it's really exciting to. See to To see what's going on elsewhere and realize that that we're part of a sort of a larger story happening all across the the U.S. Um, it, and what what I 
find most interesting about where we are is that, you know, for for a lot of these these um, I guess new wheat projects and and uh, flour projects, it's in places that historically grew wheat but no longer grow wheat because the land base just doesn't financially support it, um, like in the Northeast and and um, and elsewhere. But what's interesting about us is that we're surrounded by wheat, and we're surrounded by huge mills, general mills, and and other large um, flour mills. And so, you know, it, it's, it'll be interesting as we as we continue down this path in the in the sort of the artisanal uh, route how that will play into what we're doing. I mean, we're growing wheat in our little field right next to um, our large-scale neighbor who's also growing wheat. And we're going to try to mill mill this um, grain for flour in the same, you know, region that there's four or five other mills. And so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out if it does at all. I mean, we're obviously not competing with them, but but we're not growing wheat in a place that, used to grow wheat. We're growing wheat and grinding flour in a place that does this all around us all the time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So in that sense, your your ultimate success could be measured that if you prove profitability, uh, you know, in your in your business, that others will be others will be convinced that they too should consider growing more uh, artisanally, growing organically. Uh, and, and milling locally, so you're going to have to get ready to be um, happy and smiling when other people want to jump in bed with your project, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, perhaps. I mean, more more ideal than that would be to to bring on new young farmers to do this rather than have um, some of these existing uh, older farmers grow the varieties we're growing. I mean, I would rather have new folks come on the scene and, and find their 15 acres and, and grow along with us. And perhaps those older growers are also wishing that there were more young folks and more young babies around in the landscape and are, would be willing to, you know, give the next set of growers a chance. Like a year or two from now, and it's when you've got your systems down and you have enough infrastructure for yourself and maybe even enough infrastructure you know, for a couple other growers or maybe, I don't know, I don't want to talk too far in the future, but cooperation. And, uh, you know, what what I've been noticing a lot in the magical farm access world lately has been older growers noticing the fine efforts of um, the young farmers in their area and, and reaching out and, and giving a chance to those who have proven themselves and also to the next set who are coming along and and in a way that, you know, it used to be, I think, much more common in agricultural areas, saying, okay, kid, here's 15 acres. Knock yourself out. <laughs> and and I just heard a couple stories again this week of those kinds of things happening. Obviously, that you know, doesn't address the long term. I would, I would hope it would happen around here. What? I would hope that it would happen around here. We're, we're also in a place that doesn't have a large population to support um, well, it's the reason why my wife and I are here is because this is our home. Uh, if we were thinking strictly from a business standpoint, we we wouldn't move to North Central Montana to start a direct market diverse farm. We would move closer to a, a bigger city. Um, so there is that challenge for any small scale direct market growers around here is the market. Uh, 
not a lot of people to sell to. No, I, I know. This is the thing. I mean, and I, like, um, I just was up in uh, Essex, New York, which is where Essex Farm is, and now there's, I think, six small farms, and there's a really great new movie I have to promote called Small Farm Rising that's about three of those farms. And there they are in the middle of the Adirondacks, where the you know local economy is seriously depressed. It's the second poorest county in New York, and there's all these folks growing wonderful, fabulous food. And the you know the question really becomes, well, how do we how do we build the economy in this place back up to the point where people can afford to pay for the food at what it costs to grow it? And so obviously the um, rural, the rural exodus has major has major downsides uh, in terms of having enough people to feed, you know, in smaller smaller towns and even tiny towns. Right, right, and I mean that's that's one of one of the many reasons why we're we really want to focus our efforts on the grain is because our market expands because we don't it's storable and we don't have to worry about getting it to market as soon as it's been harvest, harvested. So um, so we do make, you know, 100-mile journeys to deliver our grain, and it's expensive, but it's it's a nice option. So, that, so that's the answer in, in those kinds of places is, is, yeah, jam, meat, beef, jerky, dried things, uh, portable, durable products. Right. But you say that right. you I mean, have a CSA, room. so that's a local part too, isn't it? What's that? Um, is your CSA um, locally based? Yeah. So there, there certainly is a, a small market for the vegetables, and and that's what we're um, trying to tap into. And we have some friends who started a farm the year after we did, uh, close to us too. So it's it's happening slowly. Um, um, but yeah, yeah, our, all our vegetables are within a 60-mile, 70-mile radius. Uh, we sell to uh, within a 60, 70-mile radius. Well, Jacob, uh, here's my last question for you. Um, maybe you could tag a few of the resources that have been of, 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 of su- tremendous support to you or inspiration, but then also if there was a magical fairy who was listening to this radio program, um, what would you ask of the magical fairy? Oh boy. boy, magical fairy! Um, magical fairy, would you like to come out and help us weed this summer? <laughs> good, good call. Okay. Yeah. And then resources. Resources. Um, you know, I I always have to give a shout out to Atra, and I know a lot of the uh, young farmers who you interview mention them as well. I think they do tremendous work and. And I haven't recently been following, but I know that their funding got cut, and um, they need all the help they can get. So ATRA's always been a good resource. And and for, for us here, we Montana's a pretty big state, but it's, it's uh, as far as the sustainable, local, organic um, food and ag community goes, it's a pretty small community. In other words, we, we all tend to know each other no matter how far away, for, you know, 500 miles away, we we all know each other, and so I find a lot of um, a lot of resources in in all those people. 
uh, that have that are part of our larger community and uh, people who we can call up and ask them questions or if we're in the neighborhood go visit their farm and, and uh, they give us a lot of a lot of help Campesina a Campesina on the high plains that's right well, it's always a pleasure, and I just give you fair warning. I'm going on cowboy tour in late June and early July because I'm making a new movie and figuring out all of my stories. So you're on my list, and you'll be hearing from me soon. Well, that Maybe I'll great. come yeah, and help you weed for a little while. <laughs> that would be great. You're, you're more than welcome to come out. Okay, party course, people, any, thank you for listening. Thank you. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. What did you say? Well, I was just going to say, any of your listeners are also more than welcome to come out. We love visitors. Yeah, well, if you come, you better bring some beer. That's my that's my guidance whenever anybody wants to go visit farm heirs. You better bring some beer. That's okay. good. Okay. Enough of that chit-chattiness. Thank you all for joining us again, and I hope you will continue to listen and continue to work. And if you're sitting in the greenhouse, listening on your iPhone, iCreature, whatever it is, um, do consider checking out our list of mobile apps and uh, the list of useful farm technologies that's on farmhack.net. Um, it's an open source list, so if you have other iCreature-compatible farm useful technologies to add, you can just add them right in. That's at farmhack.net. Thank you, Jacob. Thanks, Evan. Bye.